The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. We have a very powerful passage in front of us today of Jesus' teaching. Jesus' disciples come to Jesus and ask him this question, Who is the greatest? Jesus will answer that question, but included in his answer, he answers how one becomes the greatest. How do you think our culture would answer that question? How would our culture answer how one becomes the greatest? I'll give you a couple examples. The title of the article is How to Become the Best of the Best, written by Amy Lutkin in 2018 for the website Lifehacker. Here's what Amy writes. The first way to become the best of the best is to network, network, network. She says, work on making friends, especially people more successful than you. The second way to become the best, according to Lifehacker, is to act like you're the best. She writes, flair attracts more people taking an interest in you, which helps you build, you guessed it, a network. <laughs> Number three, how to become the best of the best, according to Lifehacker, pretend you've already been successful. She writes, write your own reviews and tell everyone how great you are. Number four, dominate or avoid people groups. If you're determined to be the best, you have to be careful about who you hitch your wagon to, so either dominate other people or avoid them altogether. Number five, Amy writes, persist. She concludes by writing, others will fall off their edge because they don't know how to play the network game. Not you, you're here to collect all the rewards. I'll give you one more example, though I could give a lot. <laughs> this one's written by John John Ejafor, and it's called Five Surefire Ways to Become the Best and Greatest in Whatever You Do. Here's what he writes. As the special person you are, the only thing good enough for you is to be the best. He explains what the best is. The best is the one who calls the shots and dictates the tune. Perhaps you've been doubting your abilities and you haven't really looked inwards to harness your capacities. But when you do, he writes, you'll become numero uno, the alpha, the best, the top of the ladder. He concludes his article by writing this. In conclusion, one serious thing you need to know about becoming the best is there's a whole wide world out there for you to conquer. Now, if we took all of the works at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, the newspaper articles that are so prevalent in our country or our online or, frankly, our formal education for that matter, we can summarize them to these three principles. Here's how to become the best according to our world. Number one, make much of yourself. Look inward and unlock all that greatness that you already have. Number two, use other people for your own ascension. And number three, this one isn't even explicitly stated because it's assumed by everyone. Live for this life. Therefore, Jesus' answer in Matthew 18 is the most countercultural, counterintuitive answer to greatness that has ever been uttered. When people say how or who is the greatest, Jesus' answer subverts every possible expectation of what it means to be great. The title of today's sermon is How to Be the Greatest. Let's see how Jesus answers. Look in verse 1. At that time, 
Matthew is very careful with his time references in his gospel. When he says at the time of something, he wants you to notice what was happening at that time. What was happening when Jesus' disciples were arguing who is the greatest? Jesus had just explained twice in Matthew 16 and Matthew 17 that he must suffer and die on the cross. It is within that context that the disciples are arguing, well, who is the greatest? Their question is based on their perception of how all kingdoms work. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of heaven for years at this point and for 17 chapters of our reading of the gospel of Matthew. And all social groups have a structure. You can come in at the bottom or you can be the middle or you can be the top. And so the disciples are asking in the kingdom of heaven, Who's the bottom? Who's the middle? Who's on top? Who's going to be on top of the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? And to answer who's the greatest, Jesus first answers how one becomes greatest. And his explanation of the kingdom is unlike any other human kingdom that's ever existed. So look in verse 2. And calling to him a child... He put the child in the midst of them in verse 3 and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I love that Jesus used an object lesson. There was a child apparently nearby. This child became part of Jesus' teaching. But notice how serious the warning is. He says, if you don't become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's talking to his disciples. They're asking, at which level makes one the greatest? Jesus' answer is, if you don't come in at the bottom, you don't even come in at all. You're asking how to come in on top. If you don't come in like a child, you never enter the kingdom. Now you should notice here, if you're thinking, but don't all the disciples make the kingdom of heaven? But you know the gospels, they don't. There's at least one listening at this moment who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Judas. Aren't we well to remember then that there are always been people who are around God and hear the teachings of God, but never become like a child and enter the eternal rule of God. These words then are sobering and necessary for all of us. Look again at verse 3. Truly, Jesus puts the truly at the beginning because what he's saying is certainly true and needs no second. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn. It's the Greek word strafo. It means to undergo a transformation or a change. In fact, if you have a NASB translation in front of you, it translates it converted. Unless you're converted like a child. Meaning, you cannot make the kingdom in your natural disposition. You must have a change, a metamorphosis, a turn, a conversion, in which you become like a child. So what does it mean to become like a child? Well, Jesus is going to give us the answer. First, let me tell you some common answers that are given that are completely wrong. (laughs) Jesus does not mean become like a child genetically or chronologically younger. This is the same error that Nicodemus had when Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus at first thought he meant in a literal chronological genetic way. And of course, that's not what he means here either. It also doesn't mean to become morally innocent. Um, if you're not sure whether or not children are morally innocent, I have four I'd like to introduce you to. <laughs> But if you've ever read the Psalms, the Psalm says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Come on, we we all know you're born a sinner. 
It's not like children are these innocent moral wonders. So when he says become like a child, he doesn't mean become morally innocent. No child is. He also doesn't mean become naive. Because at many times in the Gospels, Jesus talks about becoming more discerning and more prudent and more wise. So if he doesn't mean become like a child chronologically, you don't have to get younger literally. You also can't be innocent, so you can't be like a child that way. A child isn't innocent. And he also doesn't mean become naive. What does he mean? Well, thankfully, he tells us. Look in verse 4. Become like a child in what way? Verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. One New Testament scholar writes, the child is held up as an ideal, not of innocence or purity, but of humility and unconcerned for social status. But let me tell you why, as Americans, we are very likely to miss what Jesus is saying. We live in the 21st century, and in our cultural moment, children are maybe the top of the hierarchy of our kingdoms. They are the chief of the social structure of our world. We have this thing called Disney World. Actually, we have two of them. (laughs) We have children with the ability to go to school. They have their own sports. They have their own camps. They have their own entertainment channels and consumer products geared towards their own age group. Do you know how recent that is historically? In the early 1900s, the Industrial Revolution was underway, and children provided the cheapest labor And because of their small size, you could send them in to work on machines that adults couldn't reach. So children at the age of five were put inside small machines because they could be paid less than everybody else, and they could reach things. And many of those children died in natural accidents. And you know what our country kept doing? Sending in more children. This week, my wife and I took our five-year-old to kindergarten orientation, and we already have extra Kleenex in the car for the first day. (laughs) I can't imagine putting my five-year-old in a machine, in a mine, in the Industrial Revolution. But a hundred years ago, that's what he would have done. That's how recent everything is that we think is normal. In the year 1900, 18% of the American workforce were children. When my grandfather grew up in World War I, before my grandfather died, I remember talking to him about this. I said, Grandpa, what was it like for you growing up? Did, Did you play sports? He said, yeah, yeah, we had two socks and we got some tape, and we taped them together, and we found a stick, and we hid it in the back alley. My grandpa lived long enough to see something that no one had ever seen yet in human history for thousands of years. Do you know what he lived to see? Bleachers and auditoriums where adults would sit and watch children do stuff. No one had ever done that in any civilization for thousands and thousands of years. It was in 1938 that President FDR made child labor laws. That's how recent all of these things are that we think of as totally normal. So when Jesus says become like a child, we don't get it because as Americans, we think of children as sweet and charming and wonderful and at the top of our social ladder. And I don't mean to make us hate children. That's not my point this morning. But every other civilization would have thought of children at the very bottom of the social ladder. So when Jesus says become like a child, he means have the, have the humility to see yourself of lowest rank or lowest social status. See, children for all of human history before now were of a position of lowliness. 
D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, writes this, There is no suggestion in this passage that children are innocent or intrinsically pure or no sentimental illusion that they have better understanding. The point of the analogy is that while the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest, children are presented by Jesus as no one that anyone else would think of as great. Children are dependent. They're not strong or wise or sophisticated. They're relatively transparent. Proud adults, then, must humble themselves so that they approach God as do little children, simply in unselfconscious dependence without any hope of being great. Here, then, is an image of greatness in the kingdom that shatters our pretensions, abases our pride, and shames our selfish aspirations. So look again in verse 4. In what sense must we become like a child in order to even enter the kingdom? Whoever humbles himself. Therefore, to become a child is to go low, and it is to be dependent. This week, I was with my older children at the library. And at the library, the shelves for the children's section are pretty low. And so I thought I was within view of them, and I stumbled off a few shelves away from them. And they were over in one section looking at books, and I was several aisles away. I assumed they could still see me. But I forgot that at their low height, they can't see over the shelves. So after about 10 minutes or so of relative peace, they looked up and realized their father was nowhere to be found. And so my son cried out with tears in his face, Dad, where are you? And he said it at a volume. I thought we were all going to be kicked out of the library. (laughs) But then thankfully, when I went around and found him, with tears in his eyes, he reached up to hold my hand. Why would he do that? Is he pretending to be humble? Is he acting humble? No, because he doesn't have a car. (laughs) And he doesn't know how to get home. See, when Jesus says to become like children, he's not saying pretend to be humble. Subjectively act like you're humble. He's saying, no, objectively realize who you are. You have no hope at getting home. You have no way to figure out how to get there unless you reach out your hand with tears down your face and say, God, help me. You have no chance. But so few of us are willing to admit this. Not only does he mean be dependent, but he means go low. My wife grew up in South Carolina, and she grew up working at Chick-fil-A. I grew up in Michigan and had never heard of Chick-fil-A. Since we started dating, she has tried to increase my sanctification in this area. (laughs) When we first had kids, I remember whenever we would travel across the country in car, we would choose where we would stop based on whether or not there was a Chick-fil-A at that rest stop. (laughs) When we would stop at the Chick-fil-A, indubiously, we would end up in the play place, and I would end up chasing our children in the playground. And if you've been in a Chick-fil-A playground, they have like a, a... ruler and a top, and you have to be this low to enter the playground. If you're above that height, you're not supposed to be in there. Now, once or twice, my children were at the top and felt like they couldn't get down, and I had to squeeze myself in this small position (laughs) to debase myself by crawling to the top. Now, why does Jesus put an actual physical child in front of his disciples? To do something very similar, to say, unless you're this low, you can't get in. In our culture, we're always thinking, unless you're this big, unless you're this great. No, Jesus' answer is no, unless you're this little, you can't have any future with me. Let me tell you something on the authority of Jesus this morning. As long as you remain self-sufficient spiritually, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You must humble yourself like a child. Be dependent 
and go low. We shouldn't be surprised Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here he illustrates it again. So if you have the bulletin, here's the first point. How can I be the greatest? Number one, go the lowest. And the child was the lowest rung of the social hierarchy. You need to accept that not in fake humility, but in objective recognition. That's actually what you are. You're the lowest status and rank. Number two, how else do you become the greatest? Not only do you go the lowest, but number two, you receive the lowly. Look in verse five. Whoever receives, notice one such child. Now, often we apply this passage to literal chronological children, and there might be some fair applications there. But notice in context, he's talking about one who's a child in their dependence, in their humility. In other words, one who's a Christian. So whoever receives one who's become humble, one who's become a believer, in my name receives me. But doesn't this cut at a counter-cultural principle? You see, in our culture, we understand in every social group, I don't care if you're at the cafeteria at your high school or if you're at the, the water cooler at your office, we understand that there are gatekeepers in every social group that if I get to know them, it could increase my own status. And so when you're at a social gathering, there's a temptation to filter out of the room those who can't help you climb, but to choose to attach yourself to those who can help you climb to the top. What Jesus is telling us here is instead of highlighting those who can help us ascend, we should actually seek those who are already at the bottom, which makes us nothing like the rest of the world. At no point does the teaching of Jesus diverge from the rest of our culture perhaps more than what he says about greatness. Secular culture teaches us to be important. We have to be around people who are important and will become important at least by proxy. Jesus says we ought to receive those who are children in the sense that they've gone to the bottom and they've become low. Romans 12, verse 16 puts it this way. Romans 12, 16 is worth writing down. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with the lowly. Do not be conceited. One Sunday after church, I was in between teaching Sunday school and getting ready to go teach, uh, to preach for our church. And I was in the foyer and we had people coming from upstairs and across hallways. There was all this traffic going around. And in the foyer, there was a man loudly proclaiming that he had just gotten out of jail. So he's in the foyer and everyone he meets, hi, I'm John. Hi, I'm Rick. Hi, I just got out of jail. He's saying it as loudly as he can to everybody nearby. So at some point I came up to him, hi, I'm Josh. Hi, I just got out of jail. Hey, I'm so glad you're here. I'm really happy you're here this morning. After worship ended, he came up to me and said, well, Josh, I got to tell you the rest of the truth. I did just get out of jail, but it's because I'm the chaplain at the jail nearby. (laughs) But I just wanted to know if your church was the kind of church that I could encourage my inmates to go to when they got out. See, the Bible's telling us here to receive those who with simple, transparent faith recognize that apart from God, they are nothing. There are not many people like that. But we as Christians should be seeking those at the bottom, not seeking a climb over those we perceive as up top. Furthermore, if we are to harm one who is depending on the Lord, we've done perhaps the worst thing you can do. So look in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, and don't forget, not just children, but adults who come with childlike faith. 
Whoever causes then a Christian who has simple, transparent faith, whoever causes that kind of Christian to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Let me pause on this verse. There's a lot in it that I think we need to hear. First, it says, whoever causes to sin. And there's a Greek word that's being played on throughout all four of these verses. It's the Greek word scandalon. And the simplest way to explain it, it means to put an obstacle in front of someone who's on their way to something. So if someone's on their way to something and you put an obstacle in front of them to make it harder for them to get there, you're committing this sin. You're putting a stumbling block, a, a, a trench, uh, some sort of hurdle that makes it harder for them to get where they need to go. One commentator puts it very well. It is any obstacle that obstructs true discipleship. So any obstacle that would obstruct true discipleship is what Jesus is warning of. You see, to corrupt the transparent simplicity of faith that a believer has, a believer behaving like a child, is both profoundly evil and pathetically cruel. So Jesus says, don't do that. But now notice what he says in, in the middle. If you do that, it would be better for you to experience a horrific death. Do you know what that means? If it's better for you to experience a horrific death in this life, then it must mean that whatever comes after this life is even worse. If it's better for you to experience a horrific death now than to disobey the Lord in this manner, then whatever comes after death is immeasurably worse. So apparently there is an eternal conscious punishment for those who reject Jesus and those who are his. This is very similar to what Jesus says to about Judas when he's at the Last Supper and he says, woe to him who is about to betray the Son of Man. Do you remember what he says next? It would be better for that man had he never been born. Because what's after death is incalculably worse. And then notice the description he gives. A great millstone. Have you seen the the pictures of the ones where the donkey marches around that big wheel? That's the one he's talking about. Drowned in the depths of the sea. There's something that we might lose here. I'll try to explain it to you. My dad hates flying. Hates flying. He would rather drive through all the mountains of West Virginia to come see us. He hates getting in a plane. I've been on a plane with him once or twice. He was nervous the whole way. He would rather die any other way (laughs) than on a plane. Jews would rather die any other way than drowning. First century Jews feared seafaring to death. They hated big boats. See, Jesus is purposely using the scariest possible death to a Jew as better than rejecting and making it hard for those who would depend on Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that to reject Jesus' followers is also to reject Jesus, which is why Jesus told Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? Did you know that there's an entire group of Americans who have made it their mission to put obstacles in front of those with childlike faith in Jesus? Some of them have tenure at local universities. Some of them have online blogs or best-selling books. It would be better for them to be drowned with a millstone than to face the eternal torment that comes for those who oppose childlike faith in Jesus. Now, I need to continue, and I want to tell you why without getting too technical. If you have in front of you an ESV or a NASB, it puts a paragraph break after verse 6. 
But the Greek USBN GNT, the NIV 11, the CSB, and the NET all go through verse 9, and they're right. So verses 7, 8, and 9 actually belong in verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 9 are one unit of thought. They have to be preached that way because they're actually one intended thought. So i got to keep going, and I want to show you why verses 7 through 9 belong with 1 through 6. Verse 7, woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Do do you see what he's saying? Some people will tempt others to sin, but the justice that will come after this life should remind them of how serious it is not to tempt others to sin. Not everything can be evaluated in the here and now, but in the there and then it will be. Now verses 8 through 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. We've seen throw it away twice and we'll see thrown into fire twice. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. The point actually is very simple. It is better to throw off nascent evil that is budding within you than to let it grow eternally unchecked. But Jesus ends with a phrase that 21st century Americans get very upset about. Jesus says, thrown into the hell of fire. At this point, many people would think, well, that's why I left Christianity. Because you guys have all these harsh doctrines about judgment and hell. And then normally their response is, I wouldn't throw my worst enemy into hell. How, How dare you Christians teach of an eternal hell? That's an awful, awful thing. Well, there's a lot I could say. Let me say one thing. These people, according to verses 7 through 9, who are going to hell, are doing so because they chose to clutch their sin. You could either throw off your sin or be thrown into fire. And they said, no, I'm not going to throw off my sin. I'm choosing my sin over the Lord. Don't you know that's how hell always works? Did you know that everyone who's in hell wants to be there? In Luke 16, Jesus taught about the rich man and Lazarus. You know how similar that is to this passage, right? You have the greatest and the least. The rich man, he's the top of the hierarchy. Lazarus, he's the bottom of the hierarchy. In the end, though, there is a reversal. Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man goes to hell. Have you ever noticed what the rich man says while he's in hell and what it shows us about his character? You know what the first thing he does? He tries to keep bossing Lazarus around. (laughs) Hey, send down that servant. He was my servant on earth. Surely he's still my servant in eternity because I was really important on earth. So surely I'm still really important now. So send Lazarus down here so that he can cool and comfort my tongue. Notice then that people in hell still perceive themselves by their earthly status. I'm a big deal. I'm really important. Then he tries to boss Lazarus around again. He says, Abraham, send Lazarus back from the dead. Because surely he doesn't want to stay in heaven. (laughs) Send Lazarus out of here and tell him to go tell my five brothers. Because if he does, then they'll have adequate information and surely then they'll go to heaven. Implying that the rich man didn't receive fair information. Abraham, of course, says they have Moses and the prophets. But notice that perhaps the most striking thing the rich man does. He wants Lazarus to come down. But notice the rich man doesn't want to go up. Never asks for forgiveness, never acknowledges anything wrong, still perceives this as an injustice, and he's so rich and he's so very important. Everyone who's in hell wants to be in hell. Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28 says, The wrath of God 
is giving people over to their sinful desires. And hell only takes that to lower and lower depths than previously thought possible. So if your objection to hell is, I would never throw my worst enemy into hell, don't you understand God is simply giving people what they want? So if you don't want to throw off your sin, but want to keep it, this is what it eternally takes you. C.S. Lewis helps when he writes, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. He writes elsewhere that ascent to hell is easy, and those who begin by worshiping power soon worship evil. So how can you be the greatest? Number one, go the lowest. Number two, receive the lowly. And now number three, think eternally rather than living just temporally. Throw off what would actually become eternally damning. Would you not bring it to the cross? Now, you know what I think is really striking in this passage? Jesus never corrects them for wanting to be great. See, the world is actually tapping into something that you should want. You should want to be great. You should want to live well. So when the world comes in and gives you a way to be great, they're tapping on a good desire. They just take it in a wrong direction. You should want to be great. But greatness as Jesus teaches, not greatness as the world teaches. Let me give three spheres of examples of how the world teaches us to be great. I'll talk about the business world, the political world, and the celebrity world very quickly. In the business world, three books are on most executive shelves. The first is In Search of Excellence, written in 1982 by Tom Peters, and the next two are both by Jim Collins. They are Built to Last, 1994, and Good to Great, 2001. The business world views greatness through the lens, especially of these two men. The political world, I've been reading the last couple of weeks an overview of history, and I read about Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Great, Charlemagne, which is French for Charles the Great, Constantine the Great, Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, Frederick the Great, and Herod the Great. In the celebrity world, Muhammad Ali was famous for saying, I am the greatest. And when we talk about athletes, we call them goats, greatest of all time. We rank musicians, actors, authors. In preparation for this sermon, I read... Every ranking I could read by, by peer-reviewed journals. And I want to see who they had at the top. You know what I noticed? Their rankings don't age very well. <laughs> the celebrity world, those who said they're the greatest. How great were they really? The political world, many of these rulers who were called great, were they ever? The business world, let me pick on just one. Let me pick on Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, which he wrote in 2001, just 20 years ago. In his book, he argues certain companies are good, but other companies are great because of the values that they follow. And the 11 companies that he talked about is great. Let me tell you about them now. Circuit City, one of his great companies, is bankrupt already. Fannie Mae, one of his 11 great companies. Have you heard of Fannie Mae? Do you know know these people? Gillette uh, um, was bought up by Procter & Gamble. Pitney Bowes, which when he wrote the book was selling at $80 per share, is now at single digits per share. Wells Fargo um, was caught in a short sale in 2019, which means they were forging customer signatures in order to achieve their earthly goals. These are the companies that picture greatness. Let me give one example that I found striking this week. 
There's a young man named Octavian. As a very young man, he became the first Roman emperor in 27 B.C. He's the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius was assassinated by the Senate because they believed no man deserved that much power. But Octavian was able to coalesce all that power, and he got everybody to follow him, and he ushered in the Pax Romana, 500 years of relative peace, and he made the position of emperor one that was ironclad for a long time. And then he changed his name to Augustus Caesar because he was so great, he wanted the name Caesar to be simultaneous with greatness. And when Augustus Caesar was ruling, he made a decree that caused two seemingly unimportant people named Mary and Joseph to go to this really unimportant place named Bethlehem, where in this disgusting outhouse where animals were, some seemingly unimportant person named Jesus would be born. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and the name Jesus is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. The name Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the name Caesar is cheap, lukewarm $5 pizza. (laughs) So how can you be the greatest? Number one, go the lowest. Number two, receive the lowly. Number three, think eternally. But worship with me this morning. Who went the lowest? The eternal creator, son of God, naked on a cross. No one's gone lower. Who received the lowly? The holiest of holies sitting with sinners, tax collectors, and fishermen calling people like you and me to himself. Who prioritized eternity by radically throwing off sin? The innocent son of God who bore ours on his cross. See, the next time you see a self-help book, a biography of times, annual people of the year, or any other human assessment, try not to laugh out loud. No one has ever gone as low as Jesus. No one has ever received the lowly like Jesus. No one has ever lived prioritizing eternity like Jesus. So this morning, let's quit being impressed with the shallow assessments of our tumbling culture. Let's quit thinking like the political rulers who are power-hungry and always trying to climb higher. And let's look to him who created everything but became nothing and receive sinners rather than social climbing and put sin to death because we as sinners never succeeded to do so. So who's the greatest in the kingdom? We don't come to the kingdom because we are great. We come to the kingdom because our need is great. And because he who is the greatest came the lowest so that he could take the lowest if they'll come as children and make them eternally the greatest. Let's pray together this morning. God, please free us of the pride that so pervades our perceptions. Rescue us from the sea of falsehood that our culture would try to cause us to swim in. Give us eyes to assess rightly what greatness is and help us to recognize that we are completely dependent children who should cry out, Lord, have mercy on me and hold our empty hand upward with the hope that you will bring down your hand downward 
and the confidence that you will hold our hand in yours because Jesus Christ took our sin in his body on the cross and praise the Lord rose victoriously. Lord, I fear that someone might be here today like Judas. They've heard all this stuff. They've been around all this stuff. They could quote all this stuff, but they've never humbled themselves like a child. Help them to realize that if they do not humble themselves, they will never, ever enter the kingdom. Their soul is at stake this morning. So Lord, I pray that you would save someone through this sermon. That they would transfer from that crumbling domain of darkness and they would be moved to the kingdom of eternal light in your son, Jesus Christ, through childlike faith. Not through some work that we bring, but through acknowledging that no work that we could do could ever save us, but Jesus paid it all. But Lord, as Christians, help us to remember that the Bible still calls us children. And so shall we always be. We are the children of God the Father. And if we want to be greater, then we need to go lower. If we want to be more useful, then we need to be more dependent. We need to seek out the lowly. We need to think eternally. And we need to throw sin off in our own life through dependent request of your help. So Lord, do the work by the Spirit that we all stand in need of, but do it in such a way that we leave here today more grateful that Jesus Christ gave up everything so that we could have it in Him. In His name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.